Please listen carefully. Salutations, toppers, and welcome to episode 40 of the Turn of Phrases podcast. Today's theme is fishy phrases, so hopefully it doesn't stink. We're getting closer to the one-year anniversary of this little adventure in etymology, and I'm really excited about how I'm planning to celebrate. I don't want to give away anything just yet, but I promise it's going to be fun. Anyway, once we've finished going fishing today, don't forget to hang out until after the outro for some bloopers in Let Me Rephrase. And now, let's reel in today's phrases, origins, history, and more. Let's begin with Stuffed to the Gills. This is actually going to be a short one, but it's such a quintessential fish phrase, I felt like I had to include it. The saying means to be overly full, and it came about because of fish anatomy and how fish are sometimes served. Firstly, the anatomy. The gills on a fish are near the top of their esophagus, and if you converted that to human anatomy, gills would be on a human's neck. So if you were stuffed all the way to your gills, you'd most definitely be full. Also, when fish are served whole, they're often split down the middle and filled with seasonings and other ingredients. The result is a fish that's stuffed from the tail to the gills. As far as showing up in writing, I couldn't track the first use down. Between its simple origin and the lack of a first-time use in print information, I don't actually have anything else on this one. So let's move on to the next saying for today, shooting fish in a barrel. Saying that something is like shooting fish in a barrel is a way to say that something's incredibly easy, or a sure thing. However, the exact origin of this saying isn't a sure thing. It doesn't seem to appear idiomatically in print until 1911, making it not that old compared to many of the phrases that we explore. This particular print usage was in a short story written by a writer named Arthur Green. It was called Rumors of War, and he wrote, quote, Up to this time, it had all been easy as shooting fish in a barrel, but after a while, number nine would come pounding down from Huntington, and then I knew there would be several kinds of things to pay. End quote. This story was first published in The Scrapbook, a compilation of short stories and articles, but it was also published a year later in at least two newspapers, maybe more. Anyway, why is shooting fish in a barrel seen as easy? Well, it's actually pretty straightforward. Fish used to be shipped packed tightly in barrels, filling the whole thing. Therefore, if you shot into the barrel, it would literally be impossible to miss hitting at least one fish. So we have the packing practices of old-timey times fishermen to thank for this sure thing saying. And I guess this one's kind of short too because that's really all there is. So now let's go from a barrel to a kettle. The idiom a kettle of fish means something is messed up. Well, that's what it means most of the time. If you say something is a fine kettle of fish or a pretty kettle of fish, then this meaning applies. However, if you say something is a different kettle of fish, then, well, that's a different kettle of fish. Okay, let me back up here. First of all, what is a kettle of fish? Well, it's a kettle with fish in it. 
but not the kind of kettle you may be thinking of. This isn't the kind of kettle you make tea in, but rather an oblong pan used to cook fish whole. In the 18th century, it was common to serve whole fish freshly cooked to guests. This is referenced in the late 1780s when William Thompson, a Scottish minister and author, wrote a book called Prospects and Observations on a Tour in England and Scotland, Natural, Oenomical, and Literary. In case you want to look that book up, he wrote it under the name Thomas Newt, N-E-W-T-E. Anyway, I say that it was the late 1780s instead of giving you a specific year because I found multiple sources saying the book was written in various years, but they all were in the latter half of the 1780s. Anyway, in this book, he had the following quote. It is customary for the gentlemen who live near the Tweed to entertain their neighbors and friends with a fête champrette, which they call giving a kettle of fish. Tents or marquees are pitched near the flowery banks of the river. A fire is kindled and live salmon thrown into the boiling kettles. End quote. So we know now what an actual kettle of fish is and why they were popular. But when did they get pretty? The first use in print idiomatically came about 40 years earlier, in 1742, thanks to English writer Henry Fielding. In his book, The History of the Adventures of Joseph Andrews, he wrote, quote, Here's a pretty kettle of fish, cries Mrs. Towouse, end quote. So at least by this point, the saying was in use. Unfortunately, no one seems to know just why it became a saying. One theory that is popular, yet often disputed, is that after cooking the fish in the kettle, there would be messy remnants of the skin and bones and it was a somewhat sarcastic remark about how the kettle of fish was pretty messed up. The other main school of thought is that this phrase came about because of the 1901 edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, which lists several items under the word kettle, including kettlefish, which is a type of fish, kettle man, meaning fisherman, and kettle net, a type of fishing net. However, kettle net is also listed under kittle, spelled K-I-D-D-L-E, which is a noun meaning a dam or other barrier in a river that has an opening with nets in them to catch fish. So, because kettle and kittle sound so similar, it's thought that people mixed up the words and meanings. However, I don't think this is the dictionary's fault, because this saying was in use before 1901. Now it's time to touch on the other version, a different kettle of fish. This version of the saying means that something is entirely different than something else, and it isn't quite as old as its pretty cousin. It shows up in the vernacular around the late 19th century in Scotland and northern England, where using fish kettles were still common. It's thought that the first use in writing of this version was from a British newspaper called the Carlisle Patriot. In the June 1889 edition of this paper, we find, quote, To enable them to manage their own local affairs will not satisfy Irishmen. What they want is a very different kettle of fish. End quote. Again, the exact beginning of this saying is up in the air, but it's been around for a while, and I doubt it's going anywhere anytime soon. Now let's find a red herring. A red herring is a distraction. And what's fun about this saying is that its origin is itself a red herring. Let's start with the literal red herrings, the fish. 
A popular way to preserve fish is to soak it in a salt brine and then smoke it. If you take a salt brine herring and smoke it for a long time, it will turn red. This allows them to be safely preserved for several months, but at a cost. They smell. Like, a lot. Let's just say it would be extremely easy to follow the trail of someone transporting smoked herring. And this leads us directly to the origin of the saying. Back in 1697, a popular four-part book series called The Gentleman's Recreation was written by an author named Nicholas Cox. In this set, all about hunting, falconry, and fishing, he recommended training dogs for hunting and tracking by dragging a red herring along the ground, leaving a scent trail for them to follow. People built on that idea and would make trails for training dogs with other scents. People built upon that idea and would make trails for training dogs using a different scent, then drag a red herring across the scent trail to confuse the dogs. This is how red herrings became associated with trails, then false trails, leading to the usage we have today. Except, not really. It turns out that Nicholas made a boo-boo when translating another work from 1697, a pamphlet about training horses written by a man named Gerland Langbane. He wrote about how horses could be trained to withstand the chaos of a hunt by dragging the carcass of a small animal in front of them. However, in the absence of the carcass of a small animal, a red herring would be sufficient. Nicholas Cox then wrote incorrectly about this being a way to train hounds, not horses, inadvertently making a red herring of his own. But at this point, even with mistranslations and misunderstandings, the true use for the herring was to train, not to lead astray. So how did we get to where we are now? Apparently, it was thanks to the British Parliament. Now, what I'm about to tell you happened in 1782, but the published record of this didn't come out till 1786. However, since the latter was merely a written record of the former, I'm counting this as one instance, and as the first use in print of the way we use it today. According to the published record of the parliamentary session of March 20, 1782, it was said as, quote, Though I have not the honor of being one of those sagacious country gentlemen who have so long run on the red herring scent of American taxation before they found out there was no game on foot, they who, like their prototype, Don Quixote, have mistaken the barber's basin for a golden helmet. End quote. So, from horses to hounds to Parliament, this saying has had to truly experience its own meaning. And with that, it's time for today's metaphorical moment. It's just a metaphor, dude. It's a metaphor. Curious metaphor. A metaphor. That's just a metaphor. A fish out of water means that something is out of place. This metaphor is pretty straightforward. If you take a fish out of the water, it's going to be uncomfortable because it doesn't belong in any environment except the water. But if being out of the water potentially means death for the fish, why does the saying just mean being uncomfortable or out of place? Well, it has to do with how the fish acts when it's out of the water. It will flop around wildly, and as this happens, the fish is obviously uncomfortable. However, if the fish is returned to the water in a timely manner, it will live, and this is why the saying isn't related to death. A literal fish out of the literal water will be uncomfortable and will try to get out of the situation. But being out of the water doesn't mean a guaranteed death. As for the first ever metaphorical fish out of metaphorical water, it's hard to pin this down for sure. 
Even so, it was definitely in use by at least the 15th century, because Geoffrey Chaucer used it in the Canterbury Tales in 1483. He wrote, quote, A huge man, uncouth, a master of vessel and knew all the ports, not ride well, like a fish out of water, as sat on his own horse. End quote. Because of Chaucer's fame and influence on the literature world, he's often said to be the originator of this metaphor. But like I was just saying a moment ago, no one knows for sure who first mentioned the metaphorical uncomfort. So with that, let's go to the book for today's familiar quotation. Okay, toppers, I've got the book here open to a section of Philip James Bailey's work. I think we've... I think we've done one of his quotes before. I don't know. It's starting to get hard to keep track. Anyway, the quote for today is from his work, Wood and Water. And it says, It matters not how long we live, but how. I'd have to say I agree, Mr. Bailey. Thank you for giving us today's familiar quotation. That's going to do it for episode 40. Thank you for lending me your ears today to turn some phrases. As I always do, I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you learned something along the way. You can connect with me and fellow language lovers on Twitter and Facebook. Just look up Turn of Phrases on either site or go to turnofphrases.com for links and more information. If you want to send me a message or topic suggestions, you can email me which is brisky at turnofphrases.com, or use my website's contact form. My website also has details about all the music I use in the show. If you had a good time listening today, please consider subscribing or leaving a rating and review. Also, if you know someone who'd enjoy the show, please tell them about it to help spread the word. Thanks again for listening to the Turn of Phrases podcast, researched, written, hosted, and produced by me, Brisky. Until next time, toppers, this episode is officially over. Toodaloo. And now... This is... Let me rephrase. And drag a reg... <laughs> but let's move on. No, that's not what I wrote. If you say something's a fine kettle of fish... Fish? <laughs> <laughs> Natural, oenomical, and literary. 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 <laughs> Tents or marquees are pitched. Tents or. <laughs> well, the first use in print, which lists several types under the word. Nope. It's thought that the. Nope. If you soak fish, soaking fish, no, I just hit the keyboard. Soaking fish in a salt brine and then smoking it has long been a way. <sighs> Why can't I speak? Back in, I don't even know what that was. <laughs> Back in 1697, a popular four-part book series called The Gentleman's Recreation. That is not how to say that. Called The Gentleman's Recreation. <laughs> a pamphlet about training horses, 
written by Gerland Langbane. Langbane? Langbane. A pamphlet about training horses written by Gerald Gerland. His name's Gerland. A pamphlet about trading. <laughs> trading. Typos and names. <laughs> I'm not doing good here. But like I just mentioned, no one knows for sure who first said the metaphor. There's thing, what? There's thing, this phrase. Oh, hold on, I'm making noise. It's okay, I don't know what I wrote here, so. Oh, noise, noise, <laughs> noise, unzipping, noise. I'm going to put this in the bloopers. Noise, noise, <laughs> poop, poop, noise. Don't say noise. poop. Noise, 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 walking, walking, <laughs> sitting down, sitting down, down. Are you good now? Yes. Okay. To what? I'm not ghost hunting. I'm podcasting. Oh. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out what the heck I wrote here, though. I think this is what I'm trying to say. There's thinking. No, that still doesn't make sense. What did I write here? 